Dave, who, who do you think is the, the tallest rep in uh, public sector? Yeah. So I'm thinking Brian Mickelson. But I, I remember when I first started at Red Hat that it was like there, there was like uh, – I thought you had to be like six foot three uh, to to work there, because it, <laughs> or or we had like a basketball team or something going on, because because it, it was like there's like uh, Brian Mickelson who's like what six four, yeah. Um, we had Justin Nemers, yeah, and then we had uh, Dave Burton, and and I'm like six two six three myself, and I felt short around these guys, and but uh, but uh, they they were, and not only were they. Physically gigantic, but they they were uh, uh, gigantic personalities too. I, that's a that's very well put. Um, yeah, it's uh, especially me as like a lowly five ten dwarf. Uh, <laughs> it was it's a it's a it was especially in the early days. It was a very intimidating crew, um, and uh, so I don't know. So Brian's been Brian's been with Red Hat for what twelve years, I think, yeah. um, uh, from the early days, and. Uh, I don't know why it took us 76 episodes to figure out that we should interview him, but he is, as as you're about to hear uh, in this interview, he is uh, opinionated, he is long-winded, uh, he is loud. Uh, in other words, he is like the perfect sales rep. Yes. Um, he currently runs our, our DOD team, uh, so Army, Navy, Air Force, um, Marine Corps, and so on. Um, and uh, I, what I like about him is that he is, uh, yes, he's an accomplished sales rep, but he's also very, very intelligent. Um, mm-hmm. you, see, you see what I did there? Um, he's a <laughs> it's not 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 a requirement, often, right? But he's yeah. got both. Yeah, yeah, he really does have both, and he's got he has a very good sense uh, of kind of the government market and where it's going, uh, and he's also a great storyteller. Uh, so he was a he was a quite a get. Um, I was really happy to really happy to do this. Unfortunately, we had to record it in my hotel room in Miami. Uh, it was awkward, which is a little awkward. Yeah, yeah, as we talked about in the opening, but. Um, Personally, I've, I, I think this interview is great um, because I'm, I'm a fan of like computer history and, and to hear the journey of, of Brian going from, you know, selling T-shirts and stickers to, um, to you know, uh, like large, you know, working with uh, general justice and, and, and all that is, is just a really great story. So um, it, people should definitely, definitely check this out because it is a real treat. I, I totally agree. Uh, all right. Uh, well, with that, uh, here is Brian Mickelson. Are we going to mention where we are? Yeah, we do. Or undisclosed location? As in, as in, Gunner, Gunner's hotel room. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> a hotel in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> Long story. <laughs> Gold, gold-plated Diablo out front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know how we got here, but. <laughs> um, and, so, and Brian, how long you been with Red Hat? I started in uh, December of 2001, so d- just about 13 years. That was back when we were in a garage, right? Yeah, we were in the uh, we were in a, a factory warehouse in Durham, <laughs> North, North Carolina. <laughs> and so, how did you get the job? Um, so I came in with what they kind of refer to as the second inside sales team class at Red Hat. Uh, the first team was uh, nine folks several of which had just come over from a uh, mass layoff at Cisco. Mm -hmm. And I had been working at Cisco, knew several of the the new team members at Red Hat, uh, and had also gone through the mass layoff at Cisco, had uh, picked up uh, another job with a reseller, uh, but fell in love with the Red Hat story. So what was it about the Red Hat story that got you you hooked? It's actually, I've told the story quite a bit over the years. Um, there's There's a gentleman who actually works here with us now named Chad Pruitt, so Chad was the first inside sales rep, as he tells the story. Uh, but Chad and I used to uh, go out happy hour and just kind of exchange technology, you know, stories, notes, conversations. You drank together. We drank together, happy hour. And uh, one of the things that came from that was I was selling Unix solutions. So I was selling HP UX, I was selling Solaris, pretty much everything, IBM AIX uh, for this uh, reseller. and. Uh, Technology-wise, I, I could usually, I had inter- I had gotten Chad his job over at Cisco, or helped him get his job at Cisco. Uh, had a little bit more technology background than Chad did, so I could carry my own in a conversation with Chad. But when it came to Red Hat, I could not do that. The, the Linux story that him and I would go back and forth on, I really could not figure out a rationale why a customer would want to continue buying what I was selling versus what he was selling. 
uh, and eventually, after coming over and touring the building and meeting some of the other teammates, uh, decided to go through the interview process. Nice. And so, they, so they picked you up, um, and it was a small team. So we, we were. They had, I believe, six people on the first team, and then we were three people. So when they hired, when they did the second hiring class, and so we were an inside sales team of about nine, uh, which actually made us, I think, as big, if not bigger, than the worldwide field sales team. Right, right. So the, and so this is back in the days of we were selling hats and t-shirts, right? This was, uh, I never sold a hat or a t-shirt um, <laughs> to receive quota credit, uh, but there, it, was, it was very early on. Um, we did not have much of a business model back in 2001. Uh, we were selling what was referred to then as Red Hat Linux, uh, the 7.2 release, I think yeah. had just come out mm -hmm. before I started. Uh, and so it was actually a very busy time at Red Hat uh, because there were so many questions and there, there was lots and lots of interest, uh, but how to turn that interest into financial gain for Red Hat uh, was still a good size mystery. Uh, and I can give you an example of even yeah. kind of from the goaling perspective back then, mm -hmm. uh, an inside sales rep typically carried a $200,000 per quarter uh, sales target. And I think the field sales team generally speaking was around a 2.4 million dollar annual uh, or 600k a quarter sales target and it was uh, a little bit of a free-for-all <laughs> what do you mean by free-for-all so when we would talk to a customer um, you know we would start off with the business model as written yeah. uh, which was generally a uh, five thousand dollars would you get you uh, support and services uh, what we commonly refer to now as a subscription mm -hmm. uh, but back then we didn't necessarily call it a subscription the way it is today. You just bought your services and support and it was uh, five servers for five grand. But if the customer didn't have five grand, uh, we were quick to go to the, well, what do you have? Uh, so, so it was a uh, $200,000 scratched out any way you could every single quarter. And another unique thing about that time was it was. Every single sales rep had the same goal. The only thing that mattered was the size of the territory. So if you had a gentleman like Joe Sclafani, Joe had New York in New York City. So he didn't need a real big territory to get to his 200K. Uh, other territories, I think they gave me Delaware and uh, Eastern Ohio um, and some mountain range in Pennsylvania uh, was my was my first territory at Red Hat. And so... And, uh and so you stuck you stuck through it, right? So and, and the way you're describing the way you're describing how the sales process was organized and even how the products were organized has changed completely dramatically, right? So to, so to walk me through the next ten years. So we kind of we got to a point in time. It was uh, two thousand and I want to say it was April two thousand and two when we rolled out the Red Hat Enterprise Linux model. Yeah. Or now, was it 2003? Was some, I've heard some interesting customer meetings when that first dropped. Yeah, and actually, I, you know, I want to get my timing right on this. I think it was actually April of, I should know this. It's been so long since I've told <laughs> this particular part of the story. So I, I believe it was 2002. It might have been 2003, so, mm -hmm. so, so for facts, getting correct. Um, but I believe I was not privy to the executive level decisions that were going on at that point in time, and that would be Billy Marshall and, and Matthew Zulwick and... Uh, can't remember the COO's name, but should because he's actually a very instrumental player in all this puzzle. Al Culver? Uh, um, no, um, cannot remember his name. That's unfortunate. So, but there was a chief operating officer at the time. They came to the table and said, "This is what we're going to do," and they rolled out a product called uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux Advanced Server. In fact, it may have just been. No, I think that's right. Red Hat Enterprise Linux Advanced Server or Red Hat Linux Advanced Server, but it was Advanced Server 2.1. Uh, for our first release, and uh, they rolled out, our goals went up, the open source community went crazy. <laughs> they did not like the new model, uh, but we did have some ammunition in our pockets, uh, Red Hat Legal, and back then led by Mark Webbing, mm -hmm. um, you know, genius open source uh, legal counsel. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe he had worked this through the Free Software Foundation mm -hmm. um, and had sort of, I don't know, blessing is the correct word, and mm -hmm. I don't want to be too quoted on this, uh, <laughs> but I believe that there was some form of approval that that's a valid business he made, model. He made it right. I think it, was, I think it was one that it was made right and that we had validation from you know the Free Software Foundation that 
this business model was, in fact, a, an acceptable form of open source business. And how much of that was a concern? So I know that there was that was a big community question of when we went out with the Enterprise Linux, is oh, Red Hat's locking down Linux and this is against the principles of the whatever. That was a big community thing. Did you see that same set of concerns over on when for customers? Was it? Was it was yeah, it, so it was. Question? You know, it really was. Um, I mean, I think the, the customers in the community have always been a blurry line because mm -hmm. customers forever have also been community members, and a lot of the early adopters were also themselves Linux developers or Linux contributors or you know, just fans of the, the Linux code, mm -hmm. going back to things like Slackware and the Halloween release and, and, and things that predated me mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the Linux industry. Um, customers were not thrilled with it because there was... A, it wasn't abuse of the model, it was free software. You could take one copy bought at Staples mm -hmm. and run that on as many systems as you chose. Uh, I think it was fairly common practice to buy one copy which would come with some form of entitlement back in those days. Mm -hmm. And, and then a t-shirt. Sim I guess a t-shirt, and simply take, there was, re the, the, the one point of fact here is that it was Red Hat's largest revenue stream at the time of the change from Red Hat Linux to Red Hat Enterprise Linux was our commercial in-store box sales. Mm -hmm. So not our direct sales team, but the, the sales that came out of Staples box product right. uh, was our leading form of revenue at the time. Um, and so customers, we had taken them from a buy one, run many, uh, Ethernet, uh, you know, one Ethernet cable, uh, from machine to machine to machine to machine to keep on getting your systems updated uh, right. in, in that fashion. And uh, so when we went to a uh, you know, pay by the physical box model, uh, that did cause some concerns. And there were both concerns internally and externally. Mm -hmm. um, we were very concerned about how would we hit our enormous 300K per quarter goals right. uh, in this model that nobody uh, appreciated at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so obviously you got over that hump, right? Uh, it's almost immediately. So okay. we, your change is always hard. And so uh, we were all very concerned about this change. And the amount of uproar in the open source community of users with that Red Hat Linux base, uh, it was concerning, uh, but it was amazing how quick we went from not sure whether we'd be able to hit our targets to it started, and I do, I think this was in the 2003 timeframe, it started, uh, I, I imagine it went on for eight or nine years where we just were blowing out the numbers mm -hmm. quarter after quarter after quarter uh, in a very consistent fashion mm -hmm. under this new Red Hat Enterprise Linux model. Right. Um, I have heard it referred to as a Hail Mary pass to get the company headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in retrospect, with a you know, 12, 13 billion dollar market cap, uh, it, it looks like it worked. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so now fast forward, for, so having solved the, like how do you sell free software problem, at least for Linux, um, we then, the, this was short, this was like six months after I joined, we bought JBoss, right, in the middleware suite. Yep. So that was, I remember that as very painful. Um, so tell me about that, tell me about that. Uh, yeah, the, so the JBoss acquisition again, I think that was April 2006-ish, that, or yeah, two, yeah, right. mm -hmm. is that the right year for yeah. that? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it was another interesting time at Red Hat. Um, there's a lot of stories that'll be told better by folks that were closer to it, um, but not the smoothest of acquisitions in terms of <laughs> uh, field sales and new executive management um, uh, uh, relations. Mm -hmm. But you know, when you look at it from the sales rep's point of view, uh, we inherited at that point a, a somewhat well-known mm -hmm. application server technology. Mm -hmm. uh, their app server uh, you know, had speed, performance, security uh, on par even at that time mm -hmm. uh, with WebLogic and WebSphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, was a, a, that industry was, was, was blowing up as well. Mm -hmm. And so it, it felt like an absolutely good decision to, mm -hmm. to go buy that company. Uh, we almost immediately uh, went to market with the technology, and I think that's about the time uh, that we figured out that uh, operating systems and middleware uh, aren't the same. <laughs> and uh, and we did we struggled we struggled there in the beginning uh, quite a bit. We uh, we simply didn't know how to do what we were trying to do. And, and I, I'd say this is a field sales mm -hmm. type of discussion. I can't comment for the other, the, the other parts of the company. Um, but we definitely struggled with how do you sell this? How do you support this? 
how do we do services on it? Because mm-hmm. our services team really was a operating system focused group. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have this depth in in middleware development and application servers. And JBoss, uh, from what I understand, just was not that large of a company uh, and did not necessarily have all the services uh, capabilities that the, a company the size of Red Hat with our customer base uh, needed in, in a, that first year. And a completely different customer as well. Absolutely. Right? That was, and that was, to this day, you know, that's the thing that really folks have to understand when you look at what we do around, whether it's Red Hat Enterprise Linux today or whether it's the RHEL, REV, and, and, and software-defined storage or Red Hat storage, uh, you know, those are the infrastructure side of things, right? And we can even sort of equate that to infrastructure as a service, you know, and, and it's the predecessor to what we do now with Red Hat OpenStack. Uh, but then in the middleware realm, completely different set of customers, which also took us time because we spent the first however many months uh, really trying to sell our Linux customers uh, middleware. And, <laughs> and it, it took us, I think, longer than it probably should have. Uh, to figure out they weren't going to buy any of that. <laughs> and that we had to go find the, the application development teams and the application hosting teams. Um, and, and that took time. And I, I think there's actually, I think that still goes on today. You know, that's a, that's a legacy thing that we still have to battle with where we're, we're really a couple of different, you know, we're at least a couple of different companies, if not, if not more. And I, think, and I think as a company, that's when we figured out that, and it sounds naive to say it out loud, but we figured out that there are different audiences and different people are going to buy different stuff. Absolutely. Um, and it's, Something and it was the JBoss acquisition when we finally internalized that. I know there were earlier attempts to sell application servers, right? We tried to sell Tomcat. Um, there was a there was a Red Hat database, right? That we that we. Sold oh, we actually, you know, we should tell the part of the story that yeah, yeah, we didn't first start. I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to remember the name of the technology, but we actually we knew JBoss was out there, but that was not our first path into uh, Java-based mm-hmm. application development and and, and hosting. Uh, was it Jonas? Or, yeah. 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 So there Jonas, was a, remember right? there was a whole technology, and I'm still to this day amazed. Uh, there's a web there's a there's a website that I go to. It's a, a it's a golf tea time website, and it's powered by Jonas. And I still laugh to this day <laughs> when I see that. I'm like, that may be the only one. <laughs> but uh, but they they made that choice when they did. But so it was. Uh, it took us some time, I think, to figure out that we weren't necessarily going to be able to do this on our own. And I think, again, uh, more executive level decisions that weren't necessarily privy at, at my level, uh, but they made the decision then you know, to go out and formidably get into this marketplace. And that came with the acquisition, I think a $400 million acquisition uh, yeah. of JBoss. Yeah. And so, okay, so we got that change under our belt. And then just like this breakneck pace of acquisitions after that, right? I mean, Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, uh, we got Kubernetes. Well, I think the big one, if you, you, if you tell the story in the cycle of first it was the operating system and the enterprise model, mm-hmm. and then it was Jonas that didn't really work, and we get the JBoss acquisition. I think the next really, and I don't want to, uh, this, this shouldn't put anybody else you know, uh, out, uh, but I think the next really significant acquisition for us was the Inventor acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you oh, know, okay. Because that was, I the way... Talk, talk about who, who Inventor was. Yeah, so Inventor was a standalone, uh, Gartner recognized uh, for best practices, open source um, uh, services company. Mm-hmm. And so I think this was sort of in that whole realization period that we weren't necessarily equipped to do what we wanted to do with JBoss. And we were learning this through trial and error, you know, with customer discussions. Ha- having a Linux consultant go on a JBoss gig. Trying yeah. to figure that out. Um, and yeah. so we so we went out and we bought a Mentra. And I think a Mentra was unique too, right? Because the Mentras back then, uh, their, I think their claim to fame uh, was that they were not a, uh, you know, air quotes, uh, butts and seats type of services mm-hmm. organization. Uh, they were a train-to-trainer uh, type organization. And we don't do it today, or we definitely don't do it as much because I haven't seen it in some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to actually go to market uh, via two routes uh, on any services deal. We would offer uh, the customer uh, two proposals. One proposal is if we would come in and just do the work they asked us to do. Uh, the other proposal, which would always be slightly more, was to come in and do the work they asked us to do by training their people how to do it. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I think, a, a very effective model. And I think mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons why Mentor was a standout services company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, so then we had, we had Gluster, right? We yeah. had the Ceph. Um, Manage IQ. Manage IQ. Um, so, uh, uh, Metamatrix. Metamatrix. I mean, there's a, there are, oh, and then 
well, and now Feed Henry, yeah. um, and, and there were a bunch of Fuse. middleware acquisitions I forgot yeah. about. Fuse. Fuse. Um, so, so as a rep, right, um, it used to be Brian in a warehouse in Durham selling... A box of CDs. Selling a box of CDs, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, then, and now, not so long later, not so long after that, like less than four or five years later, suddenly you have this enormous bag you're carrying around. Absolutely. And all this stuff. So like, how do you, as an account manager, how do you handle that? So, you know, and this was... It's hard sometimes with 13 years here to remember exactly when certain things came to light. Um, we always, I think we always had a very healthy culture uh, in terms of sharing best practices. And I think whether it's part of the culture or just part of the, the people I hang out with, but it was usually over beers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was quite often uh, to the idea that we were working another few hours a day uh, after after work, mm-hmm. and I think that's when really we really would develop you know the pitches and practice on each other. Not necessarily because we thought we were practicing. I I think we were arguing, um, <laughs> but those but those arguments over time you know really led themselves to a maturing sales pitch, and then somewhere in there, um, I, my brainchild was that when I would look at the other members of the sales team, and I think this was more peer to peer than any. This was before I became a manager. Um, I think there was quite a bit of confusion amongst within the team, especially for those folks who were onboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one thing to have been here through all of it and learn the technologies one at a time right. and have all that extracurricular activity wrapped around the discussion and the learning process. It was a whole nother thing to try and bring someone quickly up to speed yeah. from the outside on, on all these things that we do. And I think somewhere in there is where, uh, what you guys know we refer to commonly as the five pillars presentation, mm-hmm. um, which really started off as just a discussion uh, where we could use your, uh, use your hand and you could figure out the five key things that Red Hat does. And I, even from discussions you know we've had this week, um, while not necessarily something that we lead with from a uh, customer-facing selling perspective, I think it's still a very good discussion internally uh, for easily uh, uh, going through what we do. And, you know, the, the basics there are RHEL, REV, uh, uh, storage, uh, JBoss, and cloud. Mm-hmm. And so while there might be 20 to 30 hours worth of presentation and discussion material in that five pillars, it's nice to be able to let a customer know very succinctly what are those products, even if we do also want to uh, be aware that leading, uh, uh, leading with and going straight to a product pitch is actually something that we, we know is part of our past, uh, but I think we're, we're working our way out of that and, and more. I'm not necessarily always into the solution discussion, mm-hmm. but I think we definitely want to uh, raise the level of discourse in our conversation above a straight product pitch mm-hmm. and get into how our technologies uh, allow solutions to occur. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So, the, so, uh, so you covered Army for longer than anybody. Right? Yeah, so, so that goes, I think, in that same kind of time period, you know, in the 2003-2004 time period, I moved over from uh, what was a commercial territory into this uh, very fledgling uh, public sector. In fact, to call it public sector actually I think is doing a huge disservice to how it was organized at the time because it was a couple of guys selling to the United States government uh, reporting up to the commercial vice president of worldwide sales. Um, and and, and it, it wasn't organized anywhere near what it is today. Right. Uh, but we can we can surely talk through some of the growth of uh, the public sector team and how it how it became. But I'll, I'll let you yeah, continue so, to ask the question. So, that, so, so now, that, now that we've got kind of, and I think it's really telling, like as we're having this discussion, the, we're talking about the products and when the products got inserted on the timeline and then how your thinking changed as the products got introduced. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's definitely kind of as a sales guy, like that's how you see the world. It's like, when, you know, what was in my bag? You know, Absolutely. Happens, right? And so, but at the same time, you have this growing sophistication with your inner relationship with the customer, right? Yes. You hinted at that with the enterprise Linux introduction back in 2002. Um, but 
So now you're moving to this public sector group, right? That's right. And on day zero, you have a meeting with a guy at the army. Oh, you'll laugh. This what is do actually you do? Like, this is actually a great. I, I think this this is one of my favorite stories at Red Hat. Uh, there's a gentleman out there, and if he if this is public, then maybe one day he hears this. Yeah. Uh, but his name's Jeff Kidwell. Uh-huh. Uh, Jeff was the original public sector sales guy at Red Hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not always he. I think Jeff gets left out of the story sometimes when it's told by by others, but. Uh, Jeff actually brought in Nathan Jones, the the federal vice pre- or the vice president of federal sales, mm-hmm. um, and so they were the two sales reps at the time, and I supported them from an inside sales capacity. Uh, but on day one, um, obviously, I uh, got into an argument with Jeff. Um, so you know, yeah, so on day one, uh, you know, Jeff is a, a, a formidable sales rep. Uh, you know, this time, I think he's 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 now off to starting companies and starting and starting public sector sales teams. But he uh, at the time. I think we had a slight disagreement about uh, roles and responsibilities, and uh, I thought it was important to uh, express my uh, my thoughts. And uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, there was another gentleman in the picture back then named Tim Spink, mm-hmm. and Tim was my boss. And uh, obviously, Jeff reported through the field management up to the VP, uh, Billy Marshall. And uh, I had first day. I had to get I had to get Tim on the call with Jeff and I just to help square away a few details <laughs> but uh but we, we quickly resolved all those um and i and shortly thereafter um and there's some interesting stories here we'll figure out how to tell them for mm-hmm. uh, for the purposes of this show but it was a, a conversation i was having with both nathan jones and jeff kidwell and i think the question i asked them it was somewhere along the lines of I, w- I was ready for the field. I had, I had come from a field role before I came in, but so liked the opportunity at Red Hat that I was willing to, to, to go back and, and, and do some more inside sales work. But I had been... Well, in, just, so, just so folks understand, yeah. like the difference between the inside and, and, and field is what inside is on phone. Yeah. And don't, you don't that, get the bill. That's exactly that, right. right. So inside, inside sales is, uh, you know, dialing for dollars, I think, is not mm-hmm. a bad way to think about it. Right. It, is, uh, it is a lot of phone calls. It is... Uh, Working, you know, your forty to fifty hours a week, you mm-hmm. know, sitting in your desk in your cube in Raleigh, mm-hmm. uh, and covering, you know, whatever territory is assigned, mm-hmm. and then your 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 field sales slightly different. I'd say uh, more autonomous, yeah. uh, more a little more flexibility, a little more freedom, mm-hmm. and uh, and and really, you know, uh, more money. Yeah. You know, so there's a there's a and the good news here, I think, you know, for if this makes the cut mm-hmm. and, and this part of the session goes, the nice thing here is there's a career path there, yeah, right? right? And that was one of the real that was one of the real nice things about Red Hat too. I can. Name you know guys like John Myers and Joel Jackson and David Little, you know all folks that you know uh, Chad McIntyre, mm-hmm. all guys who started back then in the two thousand one the two thousand three time frame, mm-hmm. and have all now become very successful uh, uh, field sales field sales managers mm-hmm. and, and really guys that helped innovate the the sales approach for what we do here at Red Hat. Yeah. So so and so but now you got immediately some tension right. So you've been out in the field already right and mm-hmm. you basically took a demotion. To go to the inside world. Yeah, you know, and there was, you know, these are some personal stories too. I I think I I wanted a field sales role when I when I came in, and uh, they didn't have one. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, I had I really I had worked before I came to Red Hat. I had I had cut my teeth on technology at IBM, and and then working with Cisco. Mm -hmm. And so it was a uh, there was a little bit of pride to swallow to Mm -hmm. come back and and sit in that inside chair. I was under the impression it would be a shorter stint than it eventually turned out to be, <laughs> um, but in that conversation on that day with Nathan and Jeff, I, uh, I think the question I asked them was whether or not they were familiar with how miserable I had actually become, <laughs> uh, and it was merely that I, I really truly wanted to get back out into the field, yeah. and it was uh, Nathan and Jeff did me a great service uh, because they did go to the VP of sales, and they really did uh, lobby my case, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think it was it was it was their, it was it was their help that got me back into the field. So so as a so now that you're back in the field, right, and you have some territory which is federal. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. This is great because if, when you look at how we're organized today, you, you might get an agency, or you, yeah. you know, on my team, you might get a sub component of yeah. an agency. Right. Um, that's not how it was back then. And what did happen uh, very shortly after I came to the field. Uh, Jeff moved on, and so we took our two field salesperson team to a three salesperson team, and then almost immediately we were back to a two salesperson team, and and that's when Nathan and I sort of looked at each other and we were like, well, how are we going to do this? What what accounts are you going to cover? What accounts am I going to cover? And I think it went something like this: uh, while I had been here longer, uh, Nathan claimed seniority because he had been in the field longer for Red Hat. 
and uh, he said, "I'll go first. So <laughs> he he took the intelligence community. Uh-huh. Uh, I took the def- I took the Department of Defense, and we split civilian down the middle. <laughs> and and that was that was our uh, account division strategy, and uh-huh. and we and we went from there. And so it, so how do you so now that you've so you have now you have DOD under your belt, right? Um, where do you start? Like, oh, it, how was, do you, it like, was awesome because I, <laughs> I knew nothing, um, and I I used to use that, and I still. There are times when I sort of go back to that and just play the I know nothing card uh, to, to get what I need because it worked so well back then that I almost I almost don't like the fact that I can't use that I know nothing card anymore because it was such a good way to, to open doors. People really, I've always found that people want to help you, mm-hmm. you know, and so if you, when you ask for help and when you let them know your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses, you, they want to trust you and they want to mm-hmm. give you that help. And it was interesting because the first thing I did was I, we had some tools, I think like a Carol's Federal Publishing, mm-hmm. I, I think it might have been, uh, now it's Dell Tech, but I think it was back then it was GovWin, or, but there was, we had a couple of paid subscription tools to help us find our way. And that was actually uh, uniquely interesting because having almost no understanding of the organization that is the US federal government from an IT procurement and IT decision making standpoint, mm-hmm. this was just starting from scratch. So the first thing I did was I found a list of all the CIOs in the DOD. And I, and I started uh, templating emails and getting out in front of these guys. I mean, as you know, a couple hundred emails out the door at one time, um, not spam, but templated introduction yeah, right. emails. Sure. Um, prior to Jeff leaving, he saw what I was doing and he was like, this may or may not be right for the, this may get edited, but <laughs> the, he was like, what are you doing, Brian? And Jeff always had a more, maybe even a straightforward kind of pattern to his uh, uh, discussions. I was like, well, I'm, I'm going after the CIOs. Because in the commercial world, CIOs really were the end all for IT decision making. Right. Uh, Jeff's point of view uh, was that I knew nothing uh, and I was going down the wrong path. While CIOs are a very important part of the uh, discussion, in the uh, defense uh, part of the business, uh, program managers were really where Jeff wanted me to focus. So I started with this templated approach to CIOs, and then I evolved that into a templated approach to the several hundred program managers, and it ranged. I would get I would get feedback. I'll tell you a couple of the ones that you know happened. Mm-hmm. Um, a sanitation program element where I had grabbed all these names and sent these templated emails. Guy wrote me back, took the meeting, we got on the phone, we were probably 10 minutes into the call and I just decided to take the Jeff Kidwell route and I, I asked him, are you interested in software at all? And and he was like, no, no, not at all. You know, we're, the, we're the sanitation department, we don't have any IT, you know, we, we do this. Yeah. I was like, well, why did you accept the meeting? Uh, and he was just like, well, you, you asked so nicely. I, I thought I would give you some time. <laughs> and, and I've had the same conversation happen again. I went up one time to, um, I went up to see, uh, I'll leave the specifics of the customer out, but I, I went up to Michigan uh, where they where they built some tactical vehicles. And uh, I was talking to those guys. And that was a really interesting day because I went through, I went from meeting to meeting that day. It lined up a few uh, for, for, for a field visit. And uh, it did, it occurred to me in that day too, these guys did not care about software. Um, yeah. They were they were building tactical vehicles. Uh, <laughs> they they were the truck manufacturer, and they knew there was some software on there. In fact, what they asked me to do was when I found the guys that were building the software solutions to let them know that that stuff was too heavy because <laughs> they were bringing in several hundred pounds worth of equipment to put onto these tactical vehicles, and the vehicles simply weren't built for that. So they it had gotten to the point where there's there's five laptops in a tactical vehicle. You can't. All your sight lines have disappeared. Uh, the vehicle's overheating. You know, the, 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 they're drawing too much power. Um, all the all the kind of problems we talk about with with swap, which was the space, weight, and power. Uh-huh. Um, those were all very real at that point in time too. But oftentimes, I found myself through this templated approach and blanket approach to uh, to, to getting the word out. Found myself in meetings that weren't necessarily the right meeting to be at, but everyone liked to talk to Red Hat. So, <laughs> so that was kind of how we. Uh, you know, the interesting thing from all these. CIO discussions and programmatic discussions was we got very busy very fast. Um, yeah, I should mention here too, uh, Chris Rungi, mm-hmm. uh, now I think VP of Solutions Architects on the uh, North America commercial team. Yeah. Um, Chris was the only solutions architect 
for the entire federal government. Mm -hmm. And uh, between Nathan's busy schedule and my busy schedule, uh, we kept Chris pretty busy. Uh, and there, there's a lot of stories that go along with that too. But it's uh, you know we basically just you know blanketed the public sector with a three-man uh, hit squad. And it, and just to give some credit where it's due. I think the other parts of the public sector team that had started to emerge at that same point in time, you had Wayne Roan, uh, mm -hmm. who was in the business development team, mm -hmm. and then you had uh, you had Mary Beekman, mm -hmm. uh, who was then uh, running the uh, federal marketing group. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so that so from that core team, which was by the way not so long ago, right? That was well, you know, it's interesting because I think Paul Smith just had his 10-year anniversary at Red Hat. Uh -huh. And so that means we're 2015, 2014. So he came in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Paul came in, that was the first time that we had a standalone public sector region. But so we're going back 10 years is sort of that point when it was two sales reps, one SA, one BD, and one marketing. Mm -hmm. And that was the public sector go-to-market strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And so. So as you so, uh, and obviously so the organization has grown up from that, right? We have like a good sized BD team now. We've got dozens and dozens and dozens of reps covering all different kinds of agencies. We have a consulting arm now that we didn't have in the past. Um, Paul still Paul still around the place. Lynn is now uh, doing doing BD. So now that you have this whole infrastructure in place, kind of fast forwarding ten years with all these new products under the belt, what has changed and what has stayed the same? Yeah, you know that's an interesting question. I think. You know, what's, I think it would have stayed the same, um, you know, the, the culture at Red Hat. I, you know, that, it's, it is unique, and I, I, you know, I, find it, I find it very interesting. It, I think it's the reason why I stay, mm -hmm. uh, is this, um, we were having this discussion in one of those after work sessions recently, and we were talking about what, what is it we do here, and how has it gotten to what it is? You know, and, and we started talking about, you know, is this the, you know, from the Cathedral of the Bazaar, you know, type mm -hmm. uh, thought process? This is a multi-billion-dollar bazaar, mm -hmm. and, and I don't think from the outside looking in, everyone might be able to see those the uniqueness that is Red Hat. But it, we, I tell the story all the time to customers about Memo List. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Memo List being this the the one thread or the one email alias that absolutely every single person in the company is subscribed to, and now it's evolved over time. And we obviously went to Friday List, and we've I think we've we've put some. Uh, request for rules around uh, memo list, right. but it is amazing to me that any person in the company can reach out, can and do, do reach out and share their input with everybody else in the company, yeah. um, and even to the point where over time, I love seeing the catalogs of how many how many posts who's the, who's the, the leading poster yeah. Yeah. Of yeah, so memo now, list. yeah so now so for folks who so, uh, for folks who haven't heard the story before yeah so memo list there's now well, almost 7000 people on that list and it's active like people all day long you'll see emails from all over the world people talking about all different kinds of things on memo list um, but every month um, I think it's Adam Jackson, right? Sends out sends out the leaderboard, which is a list of the top ten posters to memo list, and it's meant as like a regulatory thing, kind of like, hey, if you're showing up on the leaderboard, maybe you ought to spend a little bit less time on memo list. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, well, I can give you I can give you an excellent memo list story here, uh, and, and giving credit where it's due to another Red Hatter, uh, <laughs> so Tom Callaway or Spot. Yeah. Uh, and Spot was my first. SE, SA, whatever we want to call him, uh, but he was the first guy at Red Hat, and I came in green to operating systems. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't know what a kernel was. I didn't know what SUSE was. Uh, there was so much. I didn't know what free software was. So Tom Callaway had to train us from scratch, and that's literally what he did. I remember sitting in with a room one day, and he said, "This is a kernel. Mm -hmm. These are packages. They're RPMs." This is what they do. This is how you talk to them. And it was really great training. But back onto the subject of MemoList, uh, Tom, at that point in time, and I remember uh, one other story on Tom quickly. Uh, he had done such favor to me and helped him train me uh, from nothing. Uh, I wanted to thank him. And I, I asked him, you know, hey, Tom, let's, let's go get a drink after work. And he was like, no, Brian. And I, so I, I wasn't sure. You know, maybe, maybe Tom didn't want to have a drink with me. I was like, well, why not, Tom? Why, why can't we go have a drink? He, he's like, Brian, I'm 20. You know, so he, he might have been 19, but he wasn't 21. I mean, that's a, it, that, that was unique. You know, IBM and Cisco, you know, everyone was a full-grown adult. Um, so it was a unique experience at Red Hat that I was being trained by, I think, I think he was 19. I think I was being trained by a teenager, uh, which was unique and awesome. I mean, and you think about it, 
two stories on Tom. I remember standing outside the building one day and Matthew Zul, then CEO, walking by and uh, started the chat with Tom. And uh, I, I was overhearing what they were talking about. And after they left, I was like, Tom, what was that all about? And uh, Tom, I think he was, I think he was 19. And he said, well, you know, I'm the maintainer and developer behind Aurora. And I was like, well, what's Aurora? He's like, well, I ported uh, Red Hat Linux 7.2 to the Spark architecture. <laughs> I, okay, so that's great. That's, that's good work, Tom. But so in another Tom Callaway, Matthew Zulick story for MemoList, and this one I actually, this one, this one still has uh, effects on us today. Um, we didn't have uh, our, our state and local, and really I should say higher education story worked out here. And a lot of tech firms, you know, really, you know, sort of, um, I think they, what's the word I'm looking for here, but they, they invest in the higher education community. Mm-hmm. I think there's some, you know, some of it's benevolent, and I think some of it probably has, you know, uh, public commercial company type interests behind it where you, mm-hmm. you, get them, you get them involved in it at a younger age, and you know they yeah. mature into, uh, you know, IT decision makers mm-hmm. that yeah, help that's you. That's what they know. Yeah. But uh, Tom uh, fairly directly called out the CEO on memo list about our lack of a uh, benevolent uh, higher education mm-hmm. uh, model in the new Red Hat Enterprise Linux offering. And I mean, within, I think, two weeks, we went to a $25 per server. You know, I think this was, you know, what's, what's, what's the discount there? I mean, it's in, that's in the 90 percentile range of discount off of uh, MSRP or list. And that was literally driven, I think, uh, by almost public shame that yeah. we didn't have this directed at the CEO. Yeah. Good job, Tom. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And, so, and, and you're right. That's... But, and we got there. So we were talking about culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that is really, I think, a, a very unique culture. And it gets back to the story about, is this a multi-billion dollar bazaar? Because sometimes I think it looks accidental, but then it's been purposely left to fester and mature <laughs> as it wants to. It's, or, it's, it's organic. And I think it works very well. And it's an interesting thing where it may have ha- happened accidentally. I, I sometimes think we should now go back and say we did it on purpose, just like that. And <laughs> we're glad to see where it's coming to. But it, it, very organic. So now what's, so what is different now yeah, so after 10 years? I mean, obviously it's bigger and there's more forms to fill out. We've grown up. Sure. You know, I, I, here's, here's the question I ask a lot uh, of, of anyone that will listen to me. You know, is, is Red Hat the world's largest small company? Or are we the world's smallest large company? Mm-hmm. You know, and because on different days, I think we can be one or the other. You know, on some days, uh, we're, a, we're a very large, small company. Because on some days, we can be agile. Mm-hmm. And we can be fast. And we can get things done. Um, we, we can help customers uh, in a pinch. We can, we can get code released. You know, we're as fast the market with security patches as anybody has ever been in this industry. Um, you know, on other days... We've grown up and we've become a company with uh, you know sizable resources and assets and equity, and we have to do risk mitigation. And we do have a business affairs team that takes that very seriously. And so, but I think it's I think there's a good amount of give and take in there. And mm-hmm. I think we've um, I, I think we have matured and continue to mature quite nicely. Cool. And so, um, so th- I'm gonna, I'm gonna... oh, I, I got a follow-on question. Go ahead. Um, so thinking about. That what's different too with customers is that back in the day, Red Hat was the insurgent going after the Unix boxes and all that. Today we're the incumbent. That, that's and right. So how has that changed? Like is through your evolution. Great, great question because it really points out kind of the differences in what's happened, right? Because before we were an absolute takeout strategy, yeah. and you know, and we were and, and dialing for dollars. I don't think is a bad way to put it because you know how you found Linux sales. You found Unix, right? right? That was what you did. You, and, and, and there were some great ways to find Unix because you could always ask the partners, right? We had great partners, you know, and whether it was, you know, we were, we were partnered with Oracle. Oracle, in fact, some people may not know this. We were, we, when we released Red Hat Enterprise Linux Advanced Server 2.1, we had exactly one ISV certified. And it was Oracle, it might be eight I or nine I, but we had literally uh, delayed our release because we were waiting for the certification process to be complete, so that we could go to market. And I think it was it was very relevant that it was Oracle mm-hmm. because that was the enterprise killer app, right? Oracle Relational Database. Uh, that was the one that if if Larry Ellison said that he trusts 
his, his company's reputation to run on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, then Red Hat Enterprise Linux was good enough for the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge issue back then, right? Because make, making sure people understood that Linux was right for the enterprise was a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. um, but to Dave's question, that was the takeout strategy, and it was pretty straightforward. Find Unix, sell Linux. And it was the great news too was that was not a hard thing to do. When you found Unix, yeah. you sold Linux. It was, it was pretty straightforward. But today, when you look at what we do, what are we now? Now we're the innovator, right? And there was innovation back then, but this was a takeout strategy. And it wasn't always because we were better in every category than some of the competition we were taking out, whether it be Solaris or AIX or HPUX. Um, but it was the idea uh, that we could do certain things very well. Yeah, so um, good enough. Good enough, very yeah. inexpensive. It was a commodity. We were able to give customers the leverage of competing out their underlying hardware. So we had abstracted the operating system from the underlying uh, hardware. That was the model that, of du jour for uh, uh, Unix systems. And so today, when you look at what we're doing, it's not this takeout strategy, right? Now, obviously, there's still Unix to be taken out. Mm -hmm. uh, we like competing with Microsoft, but if you really look at what we're doing, I think, you know, in Red Hat Enterprise Linux OpenStack, or if you look at what we're doing with uh, OpenShift Enterprise, you know, these are highly innovative things where Red Hat's the leading contributor to the upstream communities. And so it's, it's no longer a rip and replace strategy, but we've, we, we go out and have to educate customers on the innovation model that is, and, I, and I'll quote, I think this, you know, there's some Joel Jackson in here, there's some of you in here, Gunner. Uh, I've heard Jim Whitehurst add elements to this pitch. But you know, when you really look at what we do today, we've harnessed the power of the open source you know, innovation engine, and we're bringing those capabilities to customers in consumable product models. Mm -hmm. But it's the idea that we take project technologies and make it consumable by our customers. Uh, and, and, it, and it's a much more innovative approach today, I think, than it was you know, 13 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's almost, uh, whereas before, Whereas before the goal was uh, go find somebody go find something they were already doing and then give it to them for cheaper. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so and now it's actually trying to create demand. Right? That's right. You got to go convince somebody that they need this tool because it does something that they've never seen before. That's right. right. It like was OpenStack, like OpenShift. It was a very easy decision once you saw the economics to make a Linux versus Unix decision. Mm -hmm. I think today. You know, we, we struggle, as do all innovators, you know, in the idea, when you look at private infrastructure as a service cloud computing, I think some of the questions, you know, we, we find ourselves talking about over beers these days are, you know, when do I build private infrastructure as a service clouds? Mm -hmm. You know, why do I build private infrastructure and, and, and how? So, you know, it's, it's when, why, and how, you know, these are the, the core questions. And, and, but I, and we have to, again, go through this process of, iteration of why it's important to the customer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and it's also, too, uh, it's going from the customer being simply a consumer of the product to being a collaborator in the product, Absolutely. too. Because I, I remember when I started back in 2007, you would be, you would, where, where the Stig script's at? And it, and it was <laughs> Justin Nimmers as, yes. as a solutions architect doing that on uh, his church time. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and now it's turned into the work that Sean Wells has been doing, and he has a whole community around it where Govies are actually contributing code back to it. Absolutely. So they've, they've, just, they've gone from a consumer to being a collaborator, and, and they, they're they actually using the open source model in their enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Mick, we got to we got to land this plane here a little bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to tell the story of FBCB two and, and Blue Force Tracker. Sure. So how did so this 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 relationship you've got with this program and with General Justice, who we've talked about on the show before? Um, you when did you first meet General Justice? Okay, so this was um, it was this is interesting. So the the just a little more history. So going back to Jeff Kidwell, mm -hmm. this was Jeff Kidwell's baby. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Jeff Kidwell and Chris Rungi were the original uh, account team that went out there and positioned uh, this deal. And oh, and you should describe the program. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the you know the the acronyms because we love acronyms, right? It's uh, FBCB two, uh, commonly referred to in the military as Blue Force Tracker, and this was hugely innovative. Mm -hmm. um, all these stories public at this point in time. I've heard General Justice tell them in public. Um, at that point in time, he was Colonel Justice. Uh, what he had been assigned was to get the uh, tactical machine ready to go into Iraq in 2003. And he needed to outfit, I think, 30,000 tactical vehicles 
uh, with what was then a very innovative idea, which was, uh, in fact, let me take a step back here. The whole idea of Blue Force Tracker at the time was to avoid some of what we had learned in the 1991 invasion of Iraq, mm -hmm. or, or uh, which was uh, there were very unfortunate and too often uh, friendly fire activity. Mm -hmm. And so Blue Force Tracker was this mechanism by which we could literally see the tracks of the vehicles and where they were and when they had been there so that when an airframe wanted to call in a fire or a call for fire action, they would have good insights back at command and control about the location, who's in there, mm -hmm. and, and whether it's safe, you know, can we call for fire on this location? And so General Justice, this application um, was already written. Uh, the application had been written on, to run on a Solaris platform. And uh, Je then Colonel Justice, he, he knew he couldn't afford to do it on a Spark architecture. Mm -hmm. um, but this was back when Scott McNeely was the CEO of Sun, and they had gone back and forth uh, with, with uh, different go-to-market strategies for uh, Solaris on Intel platforms, or you know, Solaris on 32-bit uh, Intel platforms, and, and this is and this is trying to get into a tactical vehicle, right? It's, Absolutely, could, right. So you this was just, a single board. Yeah. We talk about them as single board computers, right? So this was a single. This was uh, to some extent you could consider this a bit of an embedded, embedded, but it, it's an operating system running on a computer, just like anything else. The form factor is a little different, but mm -hmm. it's an operating system running on a piece of hardware, mm -hmm. uh, running uh, an application. So they had this application running on Solaris. Uh, wanted a, needed an Intel architecture to make it affordable. They weren't sure whether or not they that Sun was going to stay with their story. Uh, Sun had a couple of messages there where Linux was okay or, or Solaris on Intel. Intel chipsets were okay for some things, but not robust or you know nothing like as good as the Spark architecture. Right. So Jeff and Chris engaged with Colonel Justice. Uh, there was long discussions about costs and efficiency and total cost of ownership and uh, the, the, how quickly they could get this ported. Uh, they ported this over. Uh, Colonel Justice negotiated his way into a 96% discount. Attaboy. Uh, but, but saving the taxpayer money. Um, <laughs> and it was a very uh, interesting time. You know, in today's dollars and cents, this doesn't sound so big. But in that point in time, this was one of the larger deals we had done at the time. We did a 30,000 system buy at $6 a system uh, for a five-year deal. It was, a, you know, it was a, a, I think, close to a $2 million uh, mm -hmm. deal. And that was one of the largest deals in Red Hat history. And we had done this with the DOD. Mm -hmm. and, and when you really, and so, you know, the, the high level really, you know, the, is, is we save lives, mm -hmm. right? This, this helped save lives in the battlefield where much less friendly fire in the 2003 uh, Iraq mm -hmm. versus the 1991 Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when you look at it from the Red Hat perspective, you know, and, and kind of just look at it from the business perspective, this was the greatest reference customer of all yeah. time for us. <laughs> you know, right. commercial industry cared about the banks, and Wall Street had been a very early adopter, and there was yeah. a great you know storyline there. Um, but the federal government didn't necessarily didn't always see themselves in the same light as the Wall Street references. Mm -hmm. And so being able to talk about a downrange, tactical, lives on the line use case for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, this put us on the map. And to this day, we maintain that relationship. Uh, it, the, the, the names of the programs have changed. The, many of the people involved have changed. Uh, General Justice is now retired. Uh, but but it is, it, this was and is a great reference and, and story for Red Hat. And over time, this thing has gone from what it was as 30,000 systems uh, to considerably more. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll, I think we can leave it at, we yeah. can leave it at that in terms yeah. of numbers. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it really was, a, well, that was the watershed event, right? That's Absolutely. Because once you got Linux into a tactical vehicle in the Army, no one could mount, no one could complain if you wanted to put it into another tactical system. And, you know, if it's good enough for a Jeep, Surely it's good enough for a data center, right? And that was right, because there was really, uh, FBCB2 was what they considered at the time current state. Mm -hmm. And then there was a future state uh, vision for something, a program called Future Combat Systems. Mm -hmm. And so what we were able to do is we were able to take what was then the reference for the, the downrange you know, production environment, and we were able to work with, uh, at that time, uh, Boeing was the lead system integrator 
uh, for the Future Combat Systems program. I believe they, they had, it was the Boeing One Source team. I think there was 28 uh, fairly large companies mm-hmm. working underneath Boeing on this multi-billion dollar project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were using elements of Red Hat Linux 8.0, which would have equated the Red Hat Enterprise Linux version 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had to have very long conversations with them really to help them understand things that we still talk about today, which is there's projects and then there's products. Mm-hmm. And, th- and there's really key differences between what you can get for production quality environments and support and services and, and longevity of, of maintenance streams in the project world mm-hmm. versus what you're gonna get in the product world. Right. And because we had the reference for production downrange tactical environments, we were able to talk then with other programs like Future Combat Systems, get them to make the migration from projects to products. And then it, it really did just continue the ball down the hill because it went from tactical to, then you had to train for it. So then we started getting into the simulation systems and whether it was, uh, there's two types of, primarily two types of simulators, there's constructive and virtual, you know, uh, where uh, a constructive simulator uh, might be a, uh, a war games type approach with mm-hmm. thousands of people worldwide on a common system. And then there's other simulators uh, where there's, a, say it's a helicopter, a helicopter simulator, helicopter flight simulator. Mm-hmm. So all of these use cases for Red Hat Enterprise Linux started to come out and then it just morphs from there into the enterprise part of the Department of Defense. Right. And if you look at the Department of Defense business for us now, it's our it's our largest single vertical in Red Hat public sector. Uh, it has uh, I don't want to release too much information here, but it is a uh, it is a huge part of what we do. I think at Red Hat worldwide, and really was one of the early adopters that allowed us to tell those reference stories to make it to make to to, sh- to prove how important and how feasible it was to take this Linux on Intel chipset approach versus the traditional uh, proprietary Unix mm-hmm. on a proprietary hardware device. Right. So um, what are you looking forward to? We're about to start our new fiscal year, yeah. right? Um, what are you most looking forward to over the next year? You know, so this is, um, I, I'm, I really do. I think everyone knows. I, I, you know, pessimist, optimist, realist. You know, where do you fall on that spectrum? You know, I'm, I'm always, I think, uh, cautious, uh, cautiously pessimistic sometimes. I think, right? <laughs> you? Yeah, it's, you know, sales. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a. I think it's, it's a, it's not the worst mentality for salespeople. Um, but I am very optimistic about going into FY16. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. We, we're coming in with a lot of momentum. Um, we've hit our number for FY15, or, or we, we're predicting to hit our number, and we expect that'll that'll happen. Uh, we've had zero attrition on the DoD team in over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been hiring people, bringing people onto the team. Uh, this will be the this will be the most senior team we've ever started a year with. We have almost no ramp up to go through. Uh, we're going to hit the ground running. And when you really look at what we have to sell, you know, going back to the what's in the bag. You know, I used to have a box copy and a $200,000 goal. Uh, you know, I, I now have a humongous goal for the DOD region. You know, we represent roughly 5% of Red Hat's worldwide sales. And if you look at the things we have in the bag today, whether it's, whether it's OpenShift at the PaaS level or OpenStack for the private infrastructure as a service offering, you know, cloud forms for cloud management platform. And then you look at some of the more traditional offerings Red Hat Enterprise Linux growth is resurgent right now. Uh, you look at what we're doing with JBoss, JBoss growth is off the charts right now. And so I, I think if I was a bag carrying rep, I, there's nothing but to be optimistic about what we're gonna be capable of doing because we have a solution set almost unheard of, right? If you if you look at who our true competition is out there in the industry, it's the giants out there. It's it's the Microsofts, it's the VMwares, it's the it's the uh, it's the oracles, right? We we have built a stack that puts us as the most capable IT company on the planet, and it's awesome. That's great. That's great. So Brian, um, who should people? How, how do people get a hold of you to get the uh, to get their resumes to you? Sure. Yeah. No. Exactly right. <laughs> so uh, you know, LinkedIn. Um, so yeah. So no. But, uh, you know, it's actually a good question because we're we're constantly looking for talent. You know, and, and for this being a, a public uh, mm-hmm. a recording. Um, if you know if, if if you want to work in a company like Red Hat, where your voice will be heard, you know, and there used to be a longstanding uh, Justin Nemers and I, former Red Hatter that we mentioned earlier around the Rel4 Stigs, um, 
I don't know if I came up with it or Justin came up with it. I think it was me, but he all, he talked about it a lot. Uh, my line used to be, Red Hat's not for the meek, right? <laughs> so, you know, at Red Hat, uh, you need to bring your voice yeah. because we want to hear it. Yeah. And if you don't bring it, you, you, you may not overcome the obstacle that is all the other voices. <laughs> you know, so you, so you, you got to, if, if, if you like innovation, if you, if you want to be a leader in the IT space, if you want to work at a cool company, hey, call me. You know, yeah. So look it up on LinkedIn, Brian Mickelson. I'll include a, I will include a link to that in the show notes. So, so Brian, um, and we'll put a link to the show notes. Where, where can people find the show notes for, for, uh, for this episode of the David Gunner Show? This show is at dgshow.org. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.